Well, Akarja, it's Jerry Adams here. Jiadibsha Arish. The focus of this podcast is on the demolition of Herbert Park in Dublin, the home of the O'Rahilly, the only leader of the 1916 Rising to be killed in action. And I also deal with the report of the Independent Panel of Inquiry into the circumstances of the Hits Block and Armagh prison protests, 1976 to 1981. So first of all, to the O'Rahilly home. It was demolished in a shameful act of political and corporate vandalism and greed. The O'Rahilly, Michael Joseph O'Rahilly, was shot by British soldiers as he and other volunteers attacked a British machine gun position in an effort to cover the retreat from the burning GPO on the Friday evening after the Easter Rising. And as he lay bleeding to death in a doorway, the O'Rahilly wrote a last note to his wife. He said, Written after I was shot, Darling Nancy, I was shot leading a rush up Moore Street and took refuge in a doorway. While I was there, I heard the men pointing out where I was and made a bolt for the laneway I am in now. I got more than one bullet, I think. Tons and tons of love, dearie, to you and the boys and to Nell and Anna. It was a good fight anyway. Please deliver this to Nanny O'Rahilly, 40 Herbert Park, Dublin. Goodbye, darling. The demolition of this 40 Herbert Park again raises serious concerns at the refusal of successive Irish governments to protect Moore Street, part of the laneways of history linked to 1916 and where the leaders of the Rising held their last meeting. Herbert Park was built in 1907 for the world's fair Irish international exhibition to promote Irish industry. The O'Rahilly family moved in as its first occupants in 1909 and the O'Rahilly widow Nancy lived in this home, her home, until her death in 1961. In August, the O'Rahilly grandson, Francis O'Rahilly, called for the house to be declared a national monument and protected. He said, The house is of great historical significance. It is where the Asgard gun running was planned. Meetings for the planning of the Rising were held. Countess Margabitch and my grandmother initially set up coming the Mon from the house, and it was the house to which my grandfather addressed a note to my grandmother as he lay bleeding to death. Derry Row Limited, which demolished the house, is owned by the McSherry and Kennedy, Kennedy families who own the nearby Herbert Park Hotel. They want to build 105 apartments on the site. On the 8th of September, and Board Planala give permission for the development to go ahead, despite opposition from Dublin City Councillors, the O'Rahilly family, the 1916 relatives, Sinn Féin and others. The approval was contingent on an eight-week period to allow for any legal challenges. Several days after the decision by on board Planala, 
Dublin City Council voted to add the building to the list of protected structures. Dublin City Council Executive Owen Keegan confirmed to Sinn Féin that he had written to the developers, McSherry Kennedy, to inform them of this. However, with five weeks of that period still to run, the developers moved in on the 29th of September in the early hours of the morning and demolished the building. Dublin City Council have said that legal proceedings will be issued and I very, very much welcome this, but it will not seal Herbert Park. The Council says that it will seek the legal direction to the developers to rebuild Herbert Park and to pay the cost. So here we are, another crucial piece of the history of the 1916 revolutionary period destroyed. You know, all over Dublin, there are the homes of the men and women, the leaders and others who took part in that revolutionary uprising and in other revolutionary phases of our struggle. And there are also other buildings associated with uh, those different, very, very important phases of our history. All of them. And, you know, Dublin particularly, because in the 16 period, that was the main site of the rising. But throughout our history, different other parts of the country have seen uh, significant resistance or acts or actions associated with the struggle for freedom. All of these should be defined as national monuments. James Connolly Heron, the grandson of James Connolly and one of the main champions in the battle to save the Moor Street historic site, described the developer's action in the demolition of Herbert Park as a shocking act of cultural vandalism. He said, it's a flagrant breach of the law. It's a direct challenge to each and every elected representative holding office on behalf of citizens. And he called for the house to be rebuilt brick by brick, stone by stone, stone, garden by garden. So if you agree with James Connolly Heron, if you agree with Princess O'Rahilly, if you believe that the government must protect Moor Street, why not write and tell them that? They are the custodians of our history and the buildings and the historic sites that tell Ireland's story. Imagine the public outrage of historic sites and the fight for American independence were demolished. If Independence Hall in Philadelphia with the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution were debated and adopted. Imagine if that was destroyed by a developer. Or Robin Island in South Africa. Or the home of Harriet Tubman, abolitionist, humanitarian, and one of those who founded the Underground Railroad for Escaping Slaves from Southern states in the USA. Imagine if a developer collapsed the GPO in O'Connell Street. So right to Antishach, Michal Martin, Government Buildings, Marion Street Upper, Dublin 2, or email him at webmaster at .ie. And the Minister for Heritage, Dara O'Brien, at the Custom House, Dublin, DO1, 
W6 Axo. And by the way, maybe suggest to them that they should report the developer to Engarda Shikana for illegal activity. Meantime, the publication of the report of the independent panel of inquiry into the circumstances of the Hitz Block and Armagh prison protest 1976 to 1981 is a timely reminder of what occurred in the Hitz Blocks and Armagh in that period. On the 27th of October 1980, the first hunger strikes commenced. And the years from 76 when the British government ended special category status and sought to impose its criminalisation strategy until August 1981 when the second hunger strike ended after the deaths of 10 Republican POWs. They were hard and challenging and difficult years. And successive British governments, and particularly the Thatcher government, believed that by defeating the political prisoners they would defeat the Republican struggle. And to that end, special powers, special courts, non-jury trials, corrupt judicial practice and the admissibility of forced confession, torture and interrogation centres were all employed as tools by the British state. And the use of violence and brutality by prison administrations and prison guards was an extension of all this. And for those who lived through these traumatic years, much of what is in the report, I am sir, you are a number, confirms what we already know. However, the strength of this particular publication is in its detail, in the confidential British government documents it accessed, and in the eyewitness accounts of the prisoners and of two prison governors. This report is an indictment of a British counterinsurgency strategy which deliberately and systematically abused physically and mentally hundreds of men and women. I spent a short time in the hits blocks on remand awaiting trial on an IRA membership charge and my conditions were radically different from those of the blanket men but it did give me an opportunity to see for myself some of what they were going through and the urgent need for a mass public campaign in support of the prisoners. I wrote, I was struck by the spirit of the prisoners. In my other jail experiences, we had been cushioned by our numbers and by the prisoners' own command structure from dealing directly with the screws. It had been possible for prisoners in the cages to serve long terms with little or no contact with the administration. Here, in our individual cells, in the blocks, it was different. If you wanted to resist the search, you had to face the screws on your own. But the screws couldn't run the prison without the prisoners, and the prisoners were completely defiant. I listened in amused admiration as they shouted their defiance at particularly notorious prison officers. Most of these on my wing, that's the, the prisoners, were younger than I was and were strongly assertive. At night time on most wings throughout the blocks there would be a sing-song, a quiz, a storytelling session or occasionally we would just swap banter. I would lie back in my bed listening to the better singers competing for our applause. We had good singers, we had 
Elvis impersonators, Mick Jagger singalikes, Bobby V's and Johnny Couches, and of course, we had rebel songs. I was treated as a special security prisoner, which meant I was taken on my own when I had to go somewhere in the jail, normally for visits, and this was a bonus for me. Not only did Clat and I usually have an entire visiting block to ourselves, the one I had attempted to escape from, but it also meant that I got to see some of the blanket men when no one else was seeing them. They were the characters from the gulags, shuffling along in big boots without laces, wearing for their visits ill-fitting jackets and trousers. Most of the trousers had their backsides slit open, and all the blanket men had long unwashed hair and unkempt beards. The members of the independent panel, the late Warren Altman, Richard Harvey, Dr. John Burton, and Professor Bill Scranton, as well as Koista Na Irkimi and Omori solicitors are to be commended for their diligence in producing this report. It examines a pivotal moment in our history and provides an invaluable insight into Britain's criminalisation strategy and their determination to break the women in Armagh prison and the men in the fear plood in the hits blocks. They failed. Hussein Akarja, Tasilagom Gawil to Egfan Sawilta, Bibio, Yorimailat Arish, Slan, 